Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Be looking at uh, verses 5 through 10, and this is another uh, continuation on the theme of the Antichrist. And we looked at some of the uh, initial descriptions of the Antichrist uh, earlier in this chapter that he's described as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and will take his seat in the temple. And, and we looked at that last week. And this week we'll kind of continue in our study I'd like to uh, go ahead and begin uh, reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, just to remind you of the context. So again, it's our great joy and privilege to read from the inspired Word of God uh, given to us for the building up and edification of the church. So may the Lord uh, bless His Word. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So last week, uh, we looked at uh, the first uh, four verses primarily. We looked at uh, the coming of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, and we saw that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. Uh, I interpreted that, which has been the, the basic interpretation within Reformed theology for many, many centuries, that that temple of God is the church, not a rebuilt Jewish temple. So that God now dwells through His Holy Spirit in the church. So that when Jesus died, you remember, God tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom, which was very significant because God in effect is saying that He's withdrawing His Spirit 
withdrawing His presence from that broken temple system. And so that Christ is now the temple, as He said in John 2, destroy this temple, three days I'll rebuild it, talking about the temple of His body. Christ Himself is where God dwells. It's the incarnation. It's God the Son now dwelling in the human nature of Jesus Christ. He becomes the new covenant temple. And also, all those who are part of Christ's spiritual body share in being the temple of God as well. So when God tore the veil in the old covenant temple, the presence of God, the Spirit of God left, and where did it go? Where did the presence of God go? Well, 50 days later, at Pentecost, the Spirit now takes up a new dwelling within the church. So now, the church is the temple of God. The church is where the Spirit of God now dwells. We become the spiritual temple of the new covenant because we're the spiritual body of Christ. And Christ's body, he said, was the new temple. So every time the Apostle Paul used that phrase, temple of God, or temple of the living God, he always had the church in mind. So if you're being consistent with how Paul uses that phrase, a temple of God, then it's the church. So the Antichrist is going to have a tremendous uh, wicked uh, influence upon the church. He'll take his seat within the church, the place of power and authority within the church, and help to bring about this great apostasy that has already been mentioned uh, in verse 3. So, the Spirit of God is now filling the new covenant temple, which is the church. Now, the man of lawlessness, as he is described in verse 3, is always going to basically mimic Christ. And we looked at some of this last uh, week. But if you'll notice in our passage, it will tell us that this coming man of lawlessness with his powers and signs and false wonders will deceive people within the church. He will claim to be God and many will fall away, which is the apostasy. And those who do not fall away, the true believers who recognize the man of lawlessness and do not follow him, they will receive the persecution from those who do follow this man of lawlessness. So there will be a great apostasy of the fake Christians, but there will be a great persecution against the true Christians who will not be deceived by this coming man of lawlessness. And once he is revealed and he carries out his wicked evil schemes, then Christ will come and he will destroy this man of lawlessness and cast him into the lake of fire. So, part of what we emphasized last week is that the true church will persevere to the end. That's what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, verse 13. The one who endures to the end. In the midst of all the persecution, in the midst of all the apostasy, the one who perseveres, faithful to Christ, 
faithful to the Gospel, that's the one who will be saved. They're the true believer. And the temptations will be severe in that day. And all who love the world more than they love Christ will defect. And all who love their lives more than they love Christ will fall away. So this is a very uh, incredible prophecy. Bringing in other passages as well. And this is the way I'm interpreting this. There are certainly other interpretations of this. But this is the way that I think is, uh, is best in understanding uh, the passage. So what we're going to look now, if you'll, let's kind of pick it up now in verse 5. So notice the Apostle Paul tells them, uh, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So when Paul was there with the Thessalonians before he was kind of run out of town, he had already explained all this to them. So they actually have more knowledge and insight as to what Paul is talking about than we do. So we're trying to fit it together, but he had already explained all of this in detail to the church. And so in verse 5 he's saying, now some of you have been confused as if the day of the Lord has already come, but in verse 5, he said, don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things. So he's calling them to remember what he taught them when he was there. So we wish we could have been there because no doubt it would fill in a lot of the gaps and the questions that we may have. But I think they certainly had a good understanding of what Paul was, was teaching. It's always interesting, too, to just observe the importance of the ministry of, of remembering and this is really a vital part of uh, really one of the tasks of the church is we need to be always remembering the truth that we know, but we've forgotten. And that's why, you know, our, our memories in general, I'll speak for myself, is like a, a leaky bucket. It's like a tire with a nail in it. Sometimes it's like a tire with 20 nails in it. And the stuff comes in and the stuff goes out. And I don't remember. And I forget. And there are incredible truths that would be a great blessing to me on a daily basis. But I forget them. And so it's important for this ministry of reminding the saints what they already know because that truth is sanctifying. That's why Paul uh, mentioned to a number of churches and he said that I'm reminding you of these truths. He said that to the Romans, the Corinthians, to Timothy, Titus, the Thessalonians, Paul was always needing to remind them of the truth that they knew and forgot and they needed to, to think about it again. Peter does the same thing in his second letter. Three times Peter says, I'm reminding you of these things. Of what I wrote in the first letter. So again, this ministry of reminding just, just I think reinforces to us that you and I daily, regularly need to be reading the Word of God. We need to be reminding ourselves of these truths that oftentimes get buried under the trials of life or the pressures and the busyness of life. And that truth could bring great joy and peace into our hearts, but we forget them. And so we need to be constantly reminding ourselves, and we do, the way we do that is by reading the Word of God. Now, if we move on to verse 6 and 7, 
he now speaks, Paul now speaks of this uh, restrainer that is restraining the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness uh, from appearing. Uh, we, I'm not going to address the restrainer this week, Lord willing. Uh, we'll look at that next week because it's a very interesting study. Who or what is doing the restraining? And uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's worth spending a little time on, but we'll delay that, Lord willing, till next week. But look at, uh, so verse 6 says, And you know what restrains him? That would be the man of lawlessness now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. So the man of lawlessness has not been revealed as an individual, as the final I identify it with the Antichrist. The final Antichrist has not yet been revealed. He's being restrained. But the mystery of lawlessness, Paul says, hey, that's with us now. The mystery of lawlessness. So what does he mean by the mystery of lawlessness? Because it's clearly tied to the man of lawlessness. So what is the mystery of lawlessness? Well, Paul uses the word mystery 21 times in his letters. And a lot of times he's talking about the mystery of Christ. He's talking about the mystery of the Gospel. He uses it for the mystery of God hardening Israel's heart now. Uh, He uses it for the mystery of our transformation at the second coming. He uses it for the mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in and included in Israel's covenant blessings so that they become Gentile believers, become fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. And all of this use of the word mystery means of some idea of a hidden or unrevealed truth that's now being revealed. So it's a mystery. It was unknown But now it's made known. Now it's being revealed. But in this passage, the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7, according to Greg Beale, says that this refers to prophecy that is starting to be fulfilled in an unexpected manner in comparison to the way the Old Testament readers might have expected these prophecies to be fulfilled. Specifically, what he's talking about is that, for example, Daniel chapter 11 talks about a coming Antichrist. But if you think it's referring to just one individual, then you're not understanding it totally correctly. Because there is a spirit of Antichrist. There is a mystery of lawlessness that is taking place even now, Paul says, in the first century. This mystery of lawlessness is, this, is, is the fact that this prophecy about the coming Antichrist has, not, it has already begun its fulfillment. And this Antichrist element is going to be with us throughout the church age and then there will be one final climactic revelation of an individual who will bring it all to an end. That's a mystery. If you read Daniel 11, you get the idea it's just kind of one person at one point in time. But there's a mystery to that. It's actually going on now. 
That's why he says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's going on then in the first century. So the idea is, of course, is that this, uh, this lawlessness, that the man of lawlessness will bring to heights unknown, but that principle of lawlessness is already at work in the world. Tempting the church, bringing about apostasy, bringing about persecution. All of that's going on even now, even though it will intensify at the end of the age. But it's even going on now, Paul, I think, is saying. So this is kind of the idea of the uh, principle that theologians speak of, of the already and the not yet. There's an already fulfillment of these things now. And he's talking first century. But then there's a not yet fulfillment, a future final fulfillment of this yet to come. So basically he's saying, don't be deceived. All these things have to happen first. The day of the Lord has not come. The apostasy has to happen first. Well, that was already with them in the first century. And the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. And that hasn't happened in the final phase, but that's, that is going on even now within the world and even within the church. So don't be deceived. The day of the Lord has not yet come. The apostasy, the mystery of lawlessness, those are just the birth pangs. And really when you think about it, when has the promotion of lawlessness not been around? Uh, the man of lawlessness or the mystery of lawlessness is just promoting an antinomian view of life. That we don't have to live by the laws of God. We can create our own laws. We can live any way we want to. That's the mystery of lawlessness. And whenever this lawlessness is operating within a culture, and it's been operating in our culture ever since the first century, and all the other cultures as well, that it will, it will gradually move to, to remove sexual boundaries and prohibitions. It'll claim there's no moral absolutes. You can live any way you want to, basically. And it'll promote a self-seeking, self-centered lifestyle. It'll denigrate the sanctity of life, of sex, of marriage, and family. And this mystery of lawlessness has always been at work in the world. It's invading governments, schools, media, universities operating secretly to gain control to promote anti-social, anti-law, anti-God agenda and values and policies. And it's always very subversive. It may be cloaked in the garb of secular humanism, but it will advance a pagan, lawless, totalitarian spirit which will deny moral absolutes. And that in the culture will creep into the church. So this mystery of lawlessness, Paul says... It's now. We're not just waiting for some final form of the Antichrist. That mystery of lawlessness is at work now, Paul is saying. It's already at work. First century. So it's already begun to have its fulfillment. You see, Satan loves to divide, distract, deceive, and destroy. He wants to do that to the Gospel. He wants to do it to the church. Satan is a thief. 
who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And He's always sowing His seeds of lawlessness within the culture so that that can contribute in penetrating lawlessness into the church as the church just embraces the values of the culture. And this is one of the ways He sows His tares among the wheat. So this influence is limited. It's being restricted now. So we don't have the final phase of the man of lawlessness revealed. But his influence, in effect, is already in the world. And it's been in the world uh, since Paul wrote this. Now, interesting, uh, the Apostle John agrees with this. We'll just kind of see what John contributes to this idea of the coming Antichrist. By the way, John is the only one who mentions the word Antichrist in the New Testament. But most think it's the same as the man of lawlessness. But notice what John says in 1 John 2.18. Writing in the first century, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. So from John's perspective, he was living in the days of the last hour. And not only is there a future final Antichrist, there are many Antichrists. Even in the first century. Notice, even now, first century, many Antichrists have appeared. So the, the prophecy of the Antichrist has already begun its fulfillment. That's the point. Verse 19. They went out from us. Who do you think that they refers to? The Antichrist. In the context. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Interesting words. So where did these antichrists do their mischief and then depart from the church? See, this is not the antichrist troubling a future nation of Israel like some hold to but they're within the church. So they're doing their mischief within the church. And John says they went out from us. They were really not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. Who's he talking about? He's talking about within the church. So the Antichrist is going to have a very vicious, deceiving ministry within the church. But then they will leave the church because of their claims, his claim of deity and all these other things. These other antichrists will probably be in the same mold, the ones that throughout church history. But it's interesting, his point is there are many antichrists. Now there's going to be a future one at some point, I believe, the last one, who will bring to the greatest heights the apostasy and persecution, but it's going on now. There are many antichrists now. There are antichrists today in America and around the world. 
There's always been, ever since the first century. So that's, that's what, how John is agreeing with Paul when he says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's many antichrists, even in the first century. So that's one thing to observe. Secondly, the antichrist will deny that Jesus is the Christ according to John. In 1 John 2.22, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist will deny that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's he's, He's not the Anointed One. He's going to deny that Jesus is the Christ. So the Antichrist is is going to directly challenge the authority of Jesus Christ and actually accuse that he's not, he's not the Jewish Messiah. And so he's going to deny that. So that's another element of the Antichrist uh, that that's part of his message. He's going to say Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. He's not Christ the anointed one, which is the word for Messiah. That's what Messiah means the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. So he's going to deny that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And then John goes on to say that he's also going to deny the incarnation. In 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, and I think you infer it has come in the flesh, is not from God. If he doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. It's already operating in the first century. It's the spirit, it's it's the false teachers that are denying that Christ has come in the flesh. So this is uh, the ancient heresy of docetism. Some of the early roots of that were already kind of working within the church. Kind of a Gnostic idea that anything physical was evil. So God certainly couldn't come down from heaven and join Himself to a physical body. That would be foolish. He would never do that. That's that Gnostic docetism heresy. And the Antichrist is going to buy into it. He's going to deny that Jesus Christ, God the Son, has come in the flesh. And in John's second letter, he states this explicitly, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is going to deny the Incarnation. Whoever the Antichrist is, they're going to say that Christ has not come to the flesh. God the Son has not taken on a second nature, human nature. He's going to deny that. So that's the Antichrist. But notice again that John is emphasizing there are many Antichrists even in our day, in the first century. So the prophecy of the Antichrist started its fulfillment in the first century. There are many Antichrists The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And this is what Jesus, I think, was indicating in Matthew 24, verse 11, 
when he says, many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. So this is uh, happening in the first century. It's going to be happening throughout the church age. And then it will be consummated in one final Antichrist who will seek to destroy the church from within. And then eventually leave with all the apostates that follow him. And then he'll turn and persecute those who remain faithful to Christ and the Gospel. The Apostle Paul had to warn the Ephesians of this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So from within the church, these false teachers, these these uh, antichrists will arise to try to bring about an apostasy and will eventually withdraw and leave the church themselves. Now I think what's uh, important to observe at this point is that a lot of times people will say, have a sigh of relief. Man, I'm glad we're not in that future tribulation period. Or, or if you hold to a pre-tribulational rapture idea, well, I'm glad I won't have to go through it because I'm going to be gone. I'll be raptured out before it happens. But you're, I think that's missing the point. What, what Paul is saying is that we're already in it. And from the first century, we've been in it. That there's already been Antichrist. There's already been tribulation. We're in it. It's at work now. Now, now the idea of that future intensification, yeah, I understand that's still coming in, in my understanding. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So we need to be on guard now. We're not out of the danger. There's lawlessness going on in our day and age. And we need to examine our own lives, our own words, our own lifestyle, our own hearts, and make sure that we're not being tempted and, because we're in the midst of it. The Antichrist is at work today. So when you look again at what the, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, He talked about this lawlessness will bring about apostasy within the church and persecution. Notice He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of My name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. You see the persecution in verse 9. You see the apostasy in verse 10. And all of this has been going on throughout the church age. Again, Christians are being put to death today. So again, there's an element of this, an already element that is going on even today and has been going on since the first century. So this tribulation will have a final intensification. But I think John and Paul are teaching us, look, don't just think it's all pushed off into the future. We're in it. And because we're in it, we need to think biblically and properly about it and prepare ourselves for the battle that we are in. It's not just a future age. We are in it as well. The tribulation from the mystery of lawlessness is going on for the church now. It's been going on since the first century. 
That's why, for example, John, in his first chapter of the Revelation that he wrote, described himself as, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. John understood that he was a part of that end-time tribulation. And it's going to last throughout this whole age. It will be intensified at the end. But he considered himself to be a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Of course, Paul warned the churches, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus warned His disciples, in the world you have tribulation. And the church has been in the world since day one, right? So in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And Paul again reminds the Thessalonians that they received the word of much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So all of this is just indicating, uh, brothers and sisters, that there is a sense in which we are in the end times now. There's a, there's a final period to the end times. But we are in the end times starting from the first century. Again, just to remind you, this was the perspective of the authors of the New Testament. Again, John, 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. I mean, how... How more definite can you get? Of course, you wonder, well, what does, he, what does he mean by the last hour? He's not, he doesn't mean that literally. We're in the last 60 minutes of history. But we're in the last hour. In other words, the end days have been launched. And it's here. It is the last hour. We're in this, this end time, these last day period. He's speaking as of the first century. Even now, many, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. So from John's perspective, this final eschatological phase of history was ushered in with Jesus Christ. Look at how Peter understands the prophecy of Joel in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. He says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. When did that begin? Pentecost. At what time did it begin? In the last days. So the last days began in the first century with Christ. With Christ's first coming. With the pouring out of the Spirit. That took place in the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. The last days have continued all the way up and will continue up until Christ comes back. The author of Hebrews says, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Christ ushered in the last days. James says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure, speaking to the wicked, their treasure of wrath. He said, it's in these last days. They were living in the last days according to James. 1 Peter chapter 1 says Christ has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Author of Hebrews says that He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages He has manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Christ came at the consummation of the ages. He came and, and ushered in that period called the last days, which we've been in 
since the first century. So I think again what this is emphasizing in my mind is that when it comes to these prophecies of the apostasy, the persecution, the man of lawlessness, there's an already and a not yet fulfillment. There's an already fulfillment. These elements are already at work. Lawlessness is now at work. But there's a future final fulfillment uh, and escalation of that yet to come. You can see the lawlessness at work in the church today, can you not? I mean, you read some of the sad stories. Some churches believe that unrepentant homosexuals should be ordained into the ministry. It's within the Protestant church. People believe that. The Pope has recently endorsed homosexual partnerships, though he has not yet acknowledged their being married. He has endorsed their relationship. That's the Pope. Others argue that those engaging in unrepentant immorality can be good members in good standing in a local church. That's lawlessness. That's apostasy. Others say we can be accepting of other faiths as being legitimate roads to God other than through Jesus Christ. That's apostasy. And Christianity is too narrow. It's too restrictive. It's too harsh. Because we say there's only one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. And the sinner must repent of their sins and put their faith totally and completely in Christ alone for salvation. And they say that's too harsh. That's too narrow. Well, that's apostasy. So how do we respond in all this? We have to stand firm on the truth of God's Word. We need to cling and swing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The antidote to the poison of the Antichrist deception, which is working today in the world, is to remember God's Word and believe it, what God has said. And the problem is that we as Christians are not always discerning of the subtle forms of error that comes into the church. This is one of our challenges. It's like the proverbial frog in the water that's not aware of the slowly rising temperature until it gets boiled to death. And we often within the church don't notice the slight changes in temperature that's slowly taking place within the church. Rather, we adjust to it. We accept it. And then the temperature, the spiritual temperature of apostasy rises a few more degrees. And we don't discern it. We don't notice it. So what do we do? We adjust to it. And we begin to embrace and we begin to, to bring in the values of the culture, the lawlessness of the culture, and we become lawless ourselves until the water is so scalding hot we can't escape. See, the guard against this is to stand on the Word of God. Stand on the truth. That's why John told 1 John 2.14, the young men, you young men that are here today, he told them, he complimented them, he said that, that you're strong. And he's not just talking about lifting weights or doing push-ups. He says you're strong and, and the Word of God abides in you. That's why you're strong. 
The Word of God abides in you. And he says that's how you, you will overcome the evil one. Is because you're strong in the Word of God. And that's really a, a message to all the young people. And the old people as well. We need to be strong in the Word of God. That's how we'll stand firm against the lawlessness of the culture. How did Christ defeat Satan? The three times that Satan tempted him. Quoting Scripture. What book of the Bible did he quote? Deuteronomy. How many times did he quote it? Three times. So if your ability to stand against Satan's temptations depends upon your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy, I think many of us are in trouble. But we need to be in the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to Thy Word. Thy Word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. I think because this mystery of lawlessness is already at work, it makes it challenging and difficult to try to predict when that final phase is coming. It's hard to determine, obviously, by design. Nobody knows that except the Lord. Because history oftentimes pulsates with with great outbursts of lawlessness. And then in the providence of God, the, the common grace of God that, that's withdrawn or recedes to some, to some extent. And then lawlessness breaks out again and then it subsides and there's this pulsating movement so you can really never know for sure until we actually get to that point in time. And that's, I think that's by design. God doesn't want us to so fixate on trying to pinpoint the time just know the symptoms, know the, know the descriptions, and be alert and guard and protect yourself. Well, if we move on quickly in the, the passage, he goes on to say in verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed and the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. But then another description of the Antichrist, the coming man of lawlessness, is not only that it's already working in the world, but he's going to come with supernatural signs. Notice he says in verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. So this final Antichrist and probably some of the earlier versions of the, of the spirit of lawlessness is going to come in accord with the activity of Satan. So this man is going to be Satan's man. The word activity is a very important word in Greek. It, uh, it's always used of supernatural power. It's used mostly of God's activity, God's work. But here it's actually used of Satan's work, which suggests that there's going to be a supernatural element when he shows up and he's revealed, this final Antichrist. And notice what it says, he'll come with all power and signs and false wonders. 
And what's interesting about this, power, all power, signs, and false wonders, this final Antichrist is going to come as a counterfeit Christ because those three words are also used to describe Christ and His ministry. Power, signs, and wonders. We actually see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, that's the word powers, and wonders, and signs, which God performed through him. So the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to come and mimic Christ. He's going to be a counterfeit Christ. He's going to claim to be Christ. He's going to deny that Jesus is the Christ. He's going to deny that Jesus is God the Son who came down incarnate. But he's going to claim that for himself. And he's going to be able to do powers and signs and false wonders. Now the word false doesn't mean that the powers and signs and wonders are fake. The false wonders means they're lying wonders and powers and signs. In other words, they're trying to convince people of the lie that this Antichrist is really God. And many are going to believe it. Incredibly so. And the reason why I say it's the word false, which really should go with all three of these words, power, signs, and wonders, doesn't mean fake, is because the earlier word activity or work certainly indicates supernatural power. So Satan will pull out all the stops. He'll do everything he can with whatever powers and signs and miracles, false wonders to, to deceive people and lie to people to make them think that he is God. Matthew 24, Jesus again, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead a possible even the elect. So many within the church, many outside of the church are going to be deceived by these miracles, these signs, these wonders, and they will follow the Antichrist, but the elect will not. They will not. So the Antichrist, this final man of lawlessness, will perform incredible displays of supernatural powers to entice others to worship Him as God. And for those who don't, persecution. For those who do, that's the apostasy. So He's going to be very much in the thick of it. Now all of this suggests, who do you think, since this final Antichrist is going to come with... um, power and signs and wonders, who do you think are going to be more likely to be deceived and follow this Antichrist? I think it's going to be those in the charismatic movement. The Pentecostals. Who are already so much desiring signs and wonders and powers and miracles that they're the ones who are the most likely ones to be set up to be deceived and to fall into apostasy. Now that, I think, I'm just drawing an observation based upon 
what the Antichrist will do within the church and outside as well. But I think that element of Christianity certainly uh, looks like it could be the ones that will fall first. I'm just throwing that out as an observation. So we need to beware of modern day deceptions. Especially when it comes to miracles and signs and wonders. Be very skeptical of that. Personally, I just turn around 180 and run as fast as you can. But Philip, uh, Richard Phillips in his uh, expository commentary gave some examples of these modern day deceptions. For example, in, in the year 1858, a Roman Catholic woman named Bernadette Sibiris claimed that the Virgin Mary had appeared in the French village of Lourdes. And today, five million pilgrims journey there each year seeking miraculous healings so that the town of 15,000 residents has 270 hotels in it, the second to only Paris in the number of hotels. And this is a small town of 15,000 people. Why? Because people are flocking there wanting a miracle. They're flocking there wanting a healing. See, do you not think that those people will be easily duped by a coming Antichrist that's doing those things as well? Sadly, even in, uh, in America, our own country, in 1996, an office building in Tucson, Arizona had a slightly curved window pane that many looked at it and thought it showed the outline of Mary. And over the next ten years, hundreds of thousands of people paid homage to that glass pane claiming to have received miraculous healings as a result. People that are they so long for the signs and wonders and when the Antichrist comes, it seems like they'll be so easily drawn away. Add to that all the charlatan charismatic faith healers today that draw tens of thousands into their stadiums seeking healings, but the only ones who benefit are the faith healers who get rich on all the contributions that they get from them. So this is, a, I think this is something that the church needs to be aware of. Uh, if you look at the description of the Antichrist and even what's going on with the other Antichrists or even around today, be very weary and leery and run away from those who claim to be the source of miracles and signs and wonders. The last thing I want to just point out in verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Those who will be misled and deceived and will follow the Antichrist become a part of that apostasy are those who are deceived by wickedness because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. As one commentator said, that before this great deception lay the great rejection. They have rejected the truth. They've rejected the love of the truth. And that rejection is setting them up for the deception. 
And sadly, this is uh, what was going on even in the first century. Paul had to say to Titus that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So they're deceived because they don't love the truth. They didn't love God, really. They didn't love the Gospel. They don't love the Bible. And they're vulnerable to the deception of wickedness and they will perish. So to wrap up in conclusion, some of the keys that we need to glean from this in light of the fact that these things are going on today as well as an intense revelation of them right before Christ comes back. But they're with us today so we need to understand that. Instead of just having the idea, well, things are really going to get bad in the future. No, we're in the midst of those battles now. The apostasy, the antichrists that are working in the world even now, even within the church even now. We need to acknowledge that. We need to stand firm against that and guard ourselves. Again, we need to run from those who claim supernatural powers and signs and wonders. Claiming to be full of Christ and yet they are mimicking the antichrist Don't put your trust in them. Pray for those that are following them because I think they're being deceived. Thirdly, we can also know that the day of the Lord has not yet come. But until then, we need to persevere in the end through all the tribulations we may have to go through so that the true church will persevere to the end as Jesus said. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And we may face a lot of temptations, a lot of persecutions, a lot of tribulations. But by the grace of God, we need to walk close with Christ. We need to stay in the Word of God. We need to pursue the means of grace so that we will persevere to the end by the grace of God, which He has promised that all of His true children will in fact do. And finally, we just need to protect ourselves by loving the truth by loving Christ, by resolving with God's help to follow Christ. No matter what attacks come against the Gospel or come against the church in our lifetime, even if we're not living in the last days of the last days. We need to be faithful. In Revelation 12, which I believe is a reference to the the church in this chapter, It says that they overcame the dragon because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So does that describe us this morning? Do we overcome the temptations to fall away Because of the blood of the Lamb. Because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Because we're putting our hope and confidence in the blood of Christ. Not in our own righteousness. Is that our faith? They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, because of the word of their testimony. Are we we verbally sharing our faith? Or at least identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ in the world? They did. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. No one knows the future. But I hope and pray that if we're ever faced with either remaining faithful to Christ or dying, that we're going to willingly die for the 
cause of Christ. For the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So in all of this, I think what Paul is saying is he's giving this instruction to the church in the first century to encourage them that the day of the Lord has not yet come, but they're in the midst of a battle. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. They need to be devoted to Christ. They need to love Christ, serve Christ, stay in the Word of God, be faithful to the Lord, because they're in the midst of it. Persecution, Antichrist running around, and they need to be faithful. And so do we. And may the Spirit of God help us in our own day, our difficult days, to be faithful to Jesus Christ, no matter what the Antichrist may bring against us in our own day and age, through the government, through the culture. May we remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And that's how we stand. And that's how we persevere. And may God help us to do that. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, again, we uh, thank You, Lord, for the opportunity to study uh, these very controversial passages, but really they relate to us. They have application to us uh, far more than what we may have thought. Because we know that even though there's a final apostasy and a man of lawlessness to be revealed, but these elements have been throughout the church age. And they're in this day in which we live as well. So give us discernment. Give us Your Spirit that we might follow hard and faithfully on the heels of Christ. That we might seek to uplift Him and serve Him each and every day. Help us, Lord. We're weak, but You're strong. So give us grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.